Well, we are in part two of, uh, it wasn't meant to be a two-parter, but something happened last week, so, and it became a two-parter. So we are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 16, so I would invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to that section of God's Word. If you're using a blue Bible, one of those Bibles located underneath the seats around you, you can... uh, Turn that Bible to page 986, and that will bring you to the section that we are going to be in. Everyone doing okay? It looks like the plague is starting to leave because more of you are showing up, but I hear that we're not out of the woods yet, that it could come back, or we still have a good season of it before us, so... Wash your hands a lot, keep each other in prayer, encourage one another. This will all pass. There will be a time where we'll not ever know this again, that kind of thing, illness or sickness. I look forward to that. Okay, reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Let's jump right in. And we... The we here is Paul and his co-workers that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. So Silvanus and Timothy, Paul. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, the you, are the new believers in Thessalonica, or the original recipients and readers of this letter, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, So, the word of God that they heard from Paul and his co-workers was the message of the gospel or the message of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all things pertaining to him and concerning him that the scriptures speak of and speak to. So, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So a little review from last week. In verse 13, which is as far as we got last time, Paul referred to and gave thanks to God for the reception of the gospel message among those Thessalonians who had become Christians when Paul and his team had the opportunity to minister in Thessalonica for a short period of time. So those are the historical circumstances surrounding this letter and why he's writing what he did. The word reception, because you'll notice I titled the the entire sermon uh, Reception and Opposition. The word reception that I've used for the title It can be defined this way. It is the action or process of receiving something sent or given. That's simple. It's the action or process of receiving something sent or given. And that's really what we see uh, being described here. When the original recipients of this letter 
heard the message given by Paul and his team, they received it and embraced it not as a message or teaching invented or conceived by man, but for what it really is. That is a message that originated with God, or as a message that had come from God to them through man. Those men in particular being Paul and his ministry team, his co-workers. And, this is all by way of review now, and if the gospel message is, is the word of God, and it is, then it stands above all other human messages or theories or viewpoints or teachings that one might have heard in this world and may have accepted and embraced. And so, since they received it and embraced it and accepted it, that message that they heard as being the word of God, the Thessalonians repented then of their long-held pagan beliefs because those beliefs contradicted the message that they had heard that they believed to be and was from God himself, his message. And so, of course, that message would take priority over any other messages. And so they repented. They turned from their pagan lifestyle and ways, things that they had followed for a long period of time, things that their family followed, their neighbors followed. They turned from all of it, and they turned to the true Lord, that is, Jesus the Christ. So in contrast to what the unbelieving world may say, my friends, the gospel message is not just another humanly conceived notion or idea. It is not a man-made message, although our secular colleges would insist that it is. But rather, it is a true, faultless, and most important word or message that originated with the one and only almighty God, the creator and ruler of of all humanity. Additionally, I pointed out last time that Paul gave thanks to God for the Thessalonians' reception that we just spoke of, I just talked of, talked about, of their reception of the message that was preached. Why did he give thanks to God for that? Because it is God alone who graciously and sovereignly works to enable depraved and spiritually dead sinners to see, accept, and embrace the gospel for what it really is, the Word of God. And we spent some time talking about that last Sunday. And so if you weren't here, let me just encourage you to go back when you can and and pick that up online and, and catch up. But now we're going to continue from where we left off. Following out or flowing out of this reception of the gospel that Paul speaks of, Paul transitions now to the suffering the Thessalonian believers had endured for their newly founded faith. And then immediately follows that up with some very strong words concerning those who stood behind that suffering. So let's go back now to verse 13. We'll read it, but we're looking now at the last statement that's found there. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, 
the word of God. And then he says, which is at work in you believers. At work in you believers. A better translation, and you might, if you don't have the ESV, because that's how the ESV translates that. Uh, If you have a NASB or maybe an NIV, a better translation would be at work in you who believe. That's a more literal uh, translation of the passage. It's at work, this gospel that you have believed to be the word of God, it's at work in you who believe. So the verb there is present tense. They are believing this word. They're believing it and continuing to believe this word. That's what makes them believers, right? So when we refer to someone as a believer, so it's, it's okay that the ESV uses the word believers there because that would be the definition of a Christian person. They are believing. They don't, it's not something that occurs one time in their past when they were eight years old. They believed at that time the gospel, but then they stopped believing A true follower of Jesus, a true Christian, one who has been born again, continues to believe the very things that cause them to enter into the faith. They believe in this Lord. They follow this Lord. They trust in this Lord. All right? So he says this gospel, this word of God is at work in you believers. So the divine word, because that's what it is, that divine message does a divine work work in those who believe it. There's just no other way around it. That divine word does a divine work. It always does. It is not some empty, powerless message invented by man. Okay? If it was, then it would fall flat. But it is not that. It is something supernatural. It is something out of this world, and it does a work, a special work, in all who embrace it and believe it. It is active, this word of God. It is powerful, this gospel that is preached and proclaimed. It is transforming. It is sin-conquering. It is life-altering. That is the gospel. Why? Because it is the divine word of God, and it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish, which is to transform the sinner into a new creation into the image of Jesus Christ. It changes them. One who says they believe but has never been changed has not believed this divine word. They have not embraced it. They have not accepted it. Because if one does, then they will be impacted for the glory of God to one degree or another. And we see that over and over again. So this word that was believed, believed to be the word of God and embraced as such, this gospel, Paul says, is at work in you believers. And now we could talk about a lot of ways that the word of God is at work in believers, yes. But specifically, yeah, you could even give testimony to how it has worked out in your life and is working, right? But specifically, he gives evidence here of the fact that the word of God was at work in them, in uh, verse 14. And he does that in mentioning a similarity that the believers in Thessalonica or Thessalonica had with the believers in Judea. So that's where we pick it up in verse 14. It begins with the word for. I believe it's referring back to 1 Thess 2.14. For, it's referring back to the statement that was just named, which is at work in you believers. For, so let me explain, let me describe that. For you, brothers, okay, the Christians in Thessalonica, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
Just uh, we'll pause just there for a second. Churches, assemblies, congregations, these gatherings, but he defines it further, right? He says the churches of God. So technically, there were assemblies or gatherings of people who were following God, right? Uh, that, for instance, the Jews, but maybe had not yet embraced Christ or were still resistant to Jesus Christ. But he goes one step further. He said, I'm talking about those churches, those gatherings, those local assemblies of God, there are followers of God, that are united together in Christ Jesus. That's the definition of a true Christian church, okay? True Christian assembly. And geographically, he says specifically those that are located in Judea, the birthplace of Christianity where it all started. So the Thessalonians might now ask, well, in what way had we become imitators or have we become imitators or similar in some way to the churches in Judea, Paul? And then he answers, for, now I'm describing it, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did, those churches in Judea, from the Jews. That's what he says. So his description of the word of God being at work in those believers, his evidence for that is this, that there's, they have become imitators in this particular way of the churches, the first churches, really, of Christian faith that came out of Judea, where the faith went forth first. Another translation of the end of verse 14 that I just read you in the ESV, again, answering the way that the Thessalonian believers were similar to the believers in Judea, it reads like this. It's a good translation as well. Verse 14, For you also, the believers in Thessalonica, endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Specifically, you're enduring the same sufferings. Okay? So let's take a closer look at the similarity between the two groups and the evidence that Paul gives here that the word of God was at work in the Thessalonian believers. First, the similarity. Those that resided in Judea and those that resided in Thessalonica who believed and embraced the gospel as the word of God were both made to suffer for their Christian faith. And in both cases, who was responsible for this suffering? Well, Paul says it was their own countrymen. You could define that as their own fellow citizens, their own fellow citizens. So in Judea, certain Jews who lived in that region and actively opposed the gospel, just as they opposed Jesus Christ, as we read about in chapter 7 this morning, they went after and persecuted their own countrymen there in Judea, that is, the Jews who embraced the gospel in Judea. And similarly, in the case of Thessalonica, it was the Thessalonian Christians' fellow citizens or their own countrymen. And in this case, it would have been primarily Greeks who lived in Thessalonica, Gentiles, non-Jews, who turned on the believers there when they embraced the gospel and persecuted them. However, one thing we should note is that it was a group of gospel-rejecting Jews 
who lived in Thessalonica that were the ones who had initially stirred up the hostility toward the believers there in Thessalonica. And we read that account, we know that from Acts 17. So it was their own countrymen, just as it was in Judea, just as it is now in Thessalonica, who are persecuting them. And like the believers in Judea, the Thessalonian believers are enduring that suffering for the sake of that gospel that they believe to be and have embraced as the very word of God. And yet, their own countrymen are now turning against them and and looking to persecute them because they're turned from their way. So in the case of Judea, these, these Jews are now abandoning Judaism. And they're saying, no, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. And they say, how dare you? And they're going after them. And in Thessalonica... These Gentile pagans are abandoning their pagan ways and saying there is only one God and one Lord, and we are following him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we do away with all of our idols, and of course, their countrymen are now coming against them. They're no longer friendly to them, but they're punishing them for what they believe. So, And yet, in both cases, the similarity is also that they are not abandoning the gospel or turning away from the gospel. So to summarize again, one writer says it like this. The opposition to the gospel was instigated by the Thessalonian Jews uh, who solicited the cooperation. I'm sorry, this is not a summary. This is just in regard to what we see happen in Thessalonica. The opposition was instigated by the Thessalonian Jews that lived there, a smaller minority, who solicited the cooperation of the Gentiles in launching their attack. And of course, once it was all stirred up, the Greeks or the Gentiles, on their own accord, continued the hostility against the believers there, their own countrymen. Okay, So that's all that's being said. He's just drawing attention to these two things. So, you know, there you are. And uh, so it'd be like Upland riding out to Fontana and saying, I mean, it's not exactly the same for sure, but there's some similarities in the sense that, yeah, you, you Christians are suffering just like the Christians over in Upland, the Upland guys there are beating down on them, their own neighbors are going after them, and you too, and yet both of you are standing strong and enduring the suffering for the sake of Christ in both towns, okay? Now, concerning the evidence that the gospel of God, the word of God was at work, again, they became willing to suffer for the gospel, both of them. That, that's what Paul is saying. They're, the evidence that I'm pointing out to you both is that you became willing to suffer for this gospel that you heard. Why? Because the word of God was, or God was at work. This this, um, gospel they had believed was at work in them. Doing what? Helping them to believe that this thing that they have embraced is indeed the word of God and therefore most valuable and something you would not turn away with, no, turn away from no matter what the cost. They would not deny it. That's the work that was going on. Beyond that, that word was working in them to cause them to persevere in the face of these difficulties or struggles that they were now facing as a result of having embraced this very gospel as the word of God. And we know that that's a divine work that takes place. That's what Paul's pointing out. You know, in Matthew 13, you remember maybe the story there. Uh, Jesus is laying out, he's giving a parable, he's talking about different soils, and there's only one particular soil that the seed falls on. He's talking about the heart of man that the seed or the gospel falls on that demonstrates there was real salvation that took place. 
So the gospel goes out all over the place, falls on different soils, several different soils, but only one soil produces salvation. And so in this case, he says, look, as for what was sown on rocky ground in Matthew 13, this is the one who hears the word, and they hear the gospel, they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, they hear God's word, and immediately they receive it with joy. So you think, you think that salvation has occurred. But listen, he says, yet... He has no root in himself, so the the soil doesn't allow root to take hold there. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. No root has been established there. Okay, That's not the case when real salvation has occurred, because then a divine work is taking place, and basically causes them to persevere in that faith, believing it to be, beyond all other things, the word of God, something that they will not abandon. It's just interesting to me. You know, we were, last week we read John 6. I always, uh, he, Thomas read John 7 this morning, but last week we read John 6. And you might recall, I love this section where basically people are, Thomas had mentioned this, you know, there's lots of followers, but the second that Jesus starts making demands or saying specific things or giving instruction, he's not just handing out food anymore, right? So people are more than willing to come to him to get, you know, to feed their tummies or to heal their diseases. But then when this one who is Lord starts making demands or saying what he he says, they start fleeing, they leave. And in John 6... Jesus turns in 67 and said to the 12, his, you know, his followers, his close disciples, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave too? I love what Peter says. Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? And then he goes on and says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? All may turn away, but where am I going to go? I now believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are indeed eternal life. And it is only through you and believing in you and trusting in you and following you that I might obtain this eternal life and experience it for myself. And in the future, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I can't leave you. I can't abandon you. That is a work of God in that person. One writer puts it this way, the power of the gospel had worked itself out in the lives of both groups of believers so that a definite pattern resulted, their willingness to suffer for the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He's telling them, listen, Like your brethren in Judea, you too are suffering by your own countrymen and you're enduring that suffering. Take heart. A work of of God is taking place in your life. That's what it demonstrates. That's what Paul is saying. You, You now are being made willing to suffer for the gospel. They can't deny it. They can't turn their back on it. The God is working in their heart to want to share it. They must make it known, which is then leading to more suffering. They believe and believe even greater that the gospel is the message of God, that it was not just another humanly conceived notion or idea. 
Beloved, if, it, if that's what it was, right, if that's, if that's what they begin to think, or if that's what they thought, then why would they suffer for it? When persecution came, if it, listen, if this is just some human being's idea or notion of you know, how to have a better life or how to uh, you know, go to heaven or something of that nature, but it's humanly conceived, then I'm going to have my doubts. I'm going to really have doubts the second I begin to get persecuted for believing such things. But if this is the word of God, if it is, and it is, and I believe that to be so, and I believe it to be so because God is doing a work in my heart to give me the faith to believe such things, then what else am I to do but suffer for it? I can't turn from it because this is the way of eternal life, and it's the only way. Now, upon Paul's mention of the Jews at the end of verse 14, this is where it gets a little interesting. So he's kind of transitions. He, he gives thanks to God for what has occurred, for that reception that took place among those who believed in Thessalonica, that they, they heard that message that was preached by Paul and his team, but they didn't think it was just, ah, it's just another, just another humanly contrived story. No, they believed it to be the word of God. And he gives thanks to God for that because he realizes that that's, a, that's God opening their eyes and hearts to such things. But then he's transitioning in. He's, he's heard back now from Timothy who had visited again. He's, he's heard of what's taken place, that they have been suffering for their faith and enduring such suffering. And so he says that very word that you have believed, it's at work in you. And how does he demonstrate that? Because just like your countrymen here in Judea, the the, the cradle of Christianity. They've been suffering too from their countrymen. You as well are suffering, but they're enduring. They're continuing to believe, right? So he says, basically the idea is take heart, be encouraged. It's a demonstration of the reality of God working in you to cause you to persevere and giving you faith to believe that very word that you heard and to hold it of highest value in your hearts and in your lives so that you continue to proclaim it and continue to suffer for it, continue to live it out, continue to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, that's God working in you. You're not alone. This is what occurs among those who believe. We see that in the very, we see, you can just look at Judea, see what's going on there. But the second he says that, and he mentions the Jews, at the end of verse 14, he then immediately goes on to strongly condemn the Jews' sinful activities. And specifically there in 14, you know, he's talking about the Jews in Judea who were causing them to suffer, but we know that it was also a small group of Jews that initiated the persecution there in Thessalonica as well which resulted then in their, their own countrymen attacking them and going after them. They got them all riled up about these people who had believed the gospel. So then in verses 15 and 16, we see these, this, these strong words. So let's look at it. We'll begin at verse 14. And we're gonna be able, I want to draw something out of that for us. Let's look at it. For you, brothers, verse 14, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews there in Judea. And then he says, that's like that, when he says that, it sparks this, who killed both the Lord Jesus, 
I just, you know, think about, don't let any of these words just pass by. He doesn't say just kill Jesus, some man. Kill the Lord Jesus. That's supposed to be shocking, right? This is the one. This is the supreme being to whom all obedience and allegiance and worship is due. This was the Messiah, their Messiah. They killed him, you see? This wasn't just a man. If it was just a man, it still would have been bad. But again, nothing like killing the Lord Jesus, not just some Jesus, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. As you might remember, as we read in Acts, they, the Jews that he's referring to here, that grouping drove them, Paul and his team, out of Thessalonica. They, they got the crowd stirred up, right? And they would do that where, they were tempted to do that wherever Paul and his team would go and preach the gospel, trying to get them thrown out of the city or arrested or get people to beat him or kill him. It's the Jews. And, he says, displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then he says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. That's some heavy. That's heavy language, beloved. And so this is the portion here where he now transitions to speak about as he, he, he's giving thanks to God for what has occurred He transitions to remembering the suffering and wants to encourage them even in that. God is doing a divine work in you. There's imitation between you and your brothers in Judea in these things. You're enduring these sufferings by your own countrymen. Those who were with you now have turned against you. Don't be alarmed. This is what occurs. The Jews are turning against the Jews. Those who don't believe the gospel and who do believe the gospel are turning on one another. They were friends before. Now they are enemies. And the gospel has made them such Don't be alarmed, right? But in describing all of that, he then gives these words about the opposition that he has experienced and was experiencing from the Jews. One writer says, these two verses have been described as violent, vehement, vindictive, passionate, intemperate, bitter, and harsh. That's how they've been described. I'm not saying that's what they are. That's how they've been described, okay? Harsh, yeah, there's some, there's some harshness, harsh things being said, rightfully so. But some have thought that the words are so, so out of character maybe or so harsh that some have tried to suggest that Paul, they're not even Paul's words, that they've been added. It's out of place. It's not out of place, beloved. I'm going to demonstrate that and say it's definitely not out of place. This is what Paul's dealing with wherever he goes. The Jews. Now, you remember, right? Paul's a Jew. You remember, Jesus is, is a Jew. Okay? So we'll get to that in a second. He's clearly not talking about every Jew. This is not racism. He's talking about those that are Jewish, we'll get to it in a second, and who are opposing God, and yet at the same time claiming to be for God. 
One writer says, the Apostle Paul made an unusually abrupt transition as he began his criticism of the Jews. It is almost as if the mention of the word Jews at the end of verse 14 instantly catapulted him into the harsh words of verses 15 and 16. And I would agree with that. It, you know, he's just going along and all of a sudden, boom, now he unloads at the mention of the Jews, specifically the ones that are causing the suffering. They caused it in Judea. They initiated it in Thessalonica. They continue to hunt Paul down and try to get him thrown out anywhere and everywhere he preaches the gospel. And so Paul says some things, all true things, about this grouping of, of folks. So Paul is, again, not thinking of every Jew, obviously. Guess who made up the first churches? Jews, okay? Jews believed. Shortly after that, though, they, with the work of the Jews that Paul is referring to, they stopped believing. There was not the ones who initially believed, but they were able to have their influence on others through other synagogues to cause people to not believe and through persecution, causing them to fear to believe. Paul had to eventually focus more of his time by design, by God's divine design, on Gentile people because the Jews would no longer hear it. But there were still those minority group or smaller group of Jews who believed. They initiated the believing in the beginning. The gospel went to them first. So they believed Paul himself was a Jew, defender of the church. Not always, though. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church at one time, but God saved him and rescued him and transformed him, and now he was a a preacher, a proclaimer, a church planter, and defender of the gospel, and getting beat up by his own countrymen all along the way. So when Paul speaks of the Jews here, as I said, he's thinking about those of the Jewish nation who opposed God and his will actively, but at the same time, they claim to be advocates for God. I mean, there's, very, there's a lot of similarities even today with every other false religion under the sun. They claim to be advocates for God and yet are opposing the one and true God by what they do and by what they say. You know, like Oprah. I only mention that because I saw that she might be running for president in 2020. Don't be sucked in or deceived. She, along with many others, are active opponents of the gospel, yet claim to be advocates for God. So in verses 15 and 16, Paul draws attention now to the fact that these Jews that he's speaking about, this grouping, of Jews were behind the murder of the Lord Jesus. They were behind it, right? We know that the Romans executed him, but who who was behind the whole thing? Who brought him to that place? The Jews, his own his own people. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus went to that cross to die for our sins. Yes. So ultimately, we have all responsibility in his death 
But specifically, historically, it was the Jews who sought to see him killed. And Paul goes on, instead of listening to and heeding the words of the prophets that God sent to his chosen nation, privileged nation, prophets were sent to them, instead of listening and heeding them, what did they do? What does the the history show us? Read your Old Testament, even into the New Testament. What does it show? They chose to kill them. So it's just not... You know, in some cases, they just wouldn't listen, but in other cases, they went even further. They got tired of them talking, so they murdered them. A prophet is a representative of God. So in a sense, they're still fighting back against God. They're striking at him when they murdered the prophet of God. In the case of the Lord Jesus, they killed God himself. And now... And now they were working hard to hinder the spread of the gospel of God. It's his gospel. It's his message. Remember? That's what Paul just got through saying. I am am so grateful to God that you received it for what it really is. So as they work to oppose the gospel, they are opposing God directly because it's his message they are looking to shut out. which Paul said displeases God. That's, I don't know if that's to be an understatement. I'm not sure displeases God. At, yeah, at minimum, it displeases him. But I think he says that in that way because they claim to be those who truly please God. It's meant to be, really? The very thing you're doing displeases the one you say you are pleasing by trying to hinder the gospel work because you you are, you are sticking to the fact that this Jesus is not the Christ, is not the Messiah, therefore you must shut down this message. When he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was, they should have known. Whenever Jesus spoke to them, he spoke to them in a way that was, it would make it clear that they should have known. They had more than enough evidence. They didn't want this Savior. They didn't want this type of king unwilling to confess that they were sinners in need of a Savior, they rejected him and then made claims that he was never the one. And this is what's interesting. This act, Paul says, made them hostile to all men. Don't miss that statement. It made them hostile to all men. Their looking to hinder the gospel made them hostile to all men. Why? Because they sought to keep people from hearing about the one way, the only way that a person can escape the wrath of God that is to come and be made right forever with the Creator. They sought to shut that down. That act made them hostile to all of humanity. Pretty strong words. A couple quotes. The Jews deliberately sought to rob Gentiles of the salvation in Christ, that they resolutely rejected for themselves. That's one quote. Here's another one. Paul explains their hostility to the human race in terms of their attempt to stop the apostles from preaching the gospel and so to stop the Gentiles from being saved. Paul saw this policy 
as the appalling thing it was. The Jews had not only killed the Messiah and persecuted the prophets, they were also obstructing the spread of the gospel and so the work of salvation. And I saved this one for last of the three because I think it nails it. This commentator says, the worst feature of unbelief is not its own damnation, but its effort to frustrate the salvation of others. There are other people in our world, beloved, who are seeking to do just that. And of course, Satan is behind it all. We should be aware of these things, but the great thing is we need not fear. The gospel continues to go forth, even with all the attempts to shut it down. Christ, as he promised, is building his church and does so through the faithful efforts of his redeemed and spirit-empowered people. So the church goes on. The church continues to grow couple of statements here at the end of verse 16, and then I'll come back and just make a quick application of what we just saw there in those verses 15 and 16. But these two phrases at the end, Paul says, describing all of that and their sinful activities, he says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So some weird phrasing. And then he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. In another translation, it puts it this way. In this way, everything he just described, the killing of the Lord Jesus, the killing of the prophet sent by God, opposition to the gospel, looking to shut it out, driving out Paul who represented the gospel and was preaching it. In this way, they always, this group of Jews, heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. The New King James says, to the uttermost. To the uttermost. That's heavy, beloved. Those are heavy words. Concerning this statement, in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. Uh, You could understand it this way. One commentator says, the result of the Jews' hostility to God's word and his saints is that they, they always fill up the measure of their sins. Literally, the phrase is, they always heap up their sins to the limit. That's literally how you would understand it. And he just says there is a well-defined point at which people reach the limit of their sins. Uh, Similar to maybe the language that God uses of the Amorites, he says that their iniquity is not yet complete, the enemies of God. They still had some filling up of their cup to do, but there would be a limit where it would be no more and God would bring judgment. It's pretty heavy. This This is not language describing pagans. This is language describing the Jews, God's chosen people, the one that had all the privileges and the relationship with God, and yet they have turned their back on him and turning their back on their Messiah and rejecting the very Lord Jesus Christ and deep killing him. They have a long history of being rebellious, rejecting prophets, killing the prophets, and now they look to shut the gospel down and destroy any and all who would make it known, which is the very word of God that saves sinners. The, uh, this last phrase, the wrath of God has come upon them at last, 
I'll just quickly say, there's some question about exactly what Paul is referring to because the wording here is in the, uh, that this wrath has come upon them either at last or to the uttermost. could be understood either way. It's in the aorist tense, so the idea is that it's, occur- it's occurred, it's been completed. So some tend to think, what is Paul referring to? Is he, is he thinking of something that maybe just occurred in history? And then there's questions about that with the Jews. Specifically, is it because there's a hardness of heart now that is upon them and they're rejecting the gospel? And so that's a demonstration of God's judgment. They're refusing the, their Christ. Or is he say it's come upon them at last, it's been completed, he's looking at it in that way, but he's, he's thinking of something that's coming in the future? Is he somehow looking forward to the judgment that would come upon them in AD 70 when the nation would be destroyed and sent out all over the world again? Um, but probably he speaks of it in that way um, and expresses it as if it's already occurred because in the mind of Paul, it's a way of basically saying this thing is certain to come. Uh, one writer says, God's judgmental wrath has come upon the Jews to the uttermost. Thinking of it that way, the verb translated is in the aorist tense, which affirms that Paul was so certain that divine wrath would come that he expressed the notion as if it had already occurred. Divine wrath has come upon them. It's, it is here and it will come. Um, their cup is filled up and wrath is coming upon them. God's wrath. One writer says, God's patience with them had been exhausted. His wrath had come upon them at last. God's wrath had now reached its extreme limits. Judgment could not be averted. And of course, we know that God has a plan for the nation and will be restoring the nation in the end, but specifically these continue, this, the Jewish people continue to reject and actively reject and oppose the gospel. Judgment, judgment. God's wrath has come upon them at last, as Paul says. That's how he sees it. He sees the judgment of God coming at any time. So here's my takeaway, though, from that section. Someone told me a long time ago to not sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? Don't sweat the small stuff, Jeremy, and it's all small stuff, you know? Like, don't stress out all the time. Don't be so... This wasn't a Christian, by the way. It's just a common kind of word of advice. You know, in the end, it's not that big of a deal. I would say that's generally speaking, there's, there's there's some wisdom there. Right, because we make we make big deals out of things that we really shouldn't be making big deals out of. Yeah, you know that in the end, does it really matter? In the end, come on. Uh, let me say this: the gospel is no small thing. This is one of the areas where that word of wisdom would not apply. Paul says his harshest words. You've got to remember, Paul's heart was broken for the Jewish people. But just in thinking about what's occurring and thinking about specifically what they were doing, and they're looking to stop the gospel from advancing, 
That drew out of Paul this kind of language. This kind of serious language. Because to him, the gospel was everything. It was everything. It is everything. It is no small thing. It's the biggest thing. You with me? It's the biggest thing. You're going to get upset about something or worked up about something. Get worked up about this. Get worked up about the gospel. That's what should be going on in the heart of a Christian. That he would be so passionate about this because it's worth being passionate about. There is no bigger thing, no greater thing. And so, yeah, Paul had these words to say for those who look to shut that thing down, stand in the way of man's salvation. One writer said it was precisely because Paul clearly saw the seriousness of the hindering work of the Jews, that it was fraught with eternal consequences for the Gentiles. They were able to turn away from the gospel that he denounced the Jews so passionately. Yeah, Paul got worked up because it was worth getting worked up about. Beloved, if you are indeed a Christian, then you obviously wouldn't purposely try to silence others from advancing the gospel. Yeah? Yeah? Okay? So you're like, well, that's not me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actively looking, I, you know, I'm not actively looking to shut, I mean, if you're, if you're doing that, you're not a believer. You're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ if you're looking to shut the gospel down or silence others who make it known, right? That's these people. So that's not you, I get it. But what are you doing to advance it? That's the question for you. Is this a big deal to you? Is the gospel a big deal to you? Is that others would hear the gospel a big deal to you? That's the question for us. We're studying a book, Love or Die, and speaks about the danger that can happen to all of us to that the love that we had at first grows cold, the love for God, the love for the Lord Jesus, the love for the gospel, and out of that, a love for others. We need to be careful, beloved. We stand back and we go, well, I would never do that. I would never hinder the work of the gospel. Oh, I sure hope not. You'd be outside of the faith if you did. But what are you doing to advance it? Father in heaven, We confess that, oh, so many things we allow in our lives to, to be worked up about, to, to be so passionate about, my goodness, so many things that in the end, or concerned about even, so many things that in the end mean probably nothing, have very little to do in consequences, or certainly of eternal consequences, and yet, when it comes to the gospel, we might find ourselves being ho-hum, apathetic, 
Or maybe, Father, maybe I, I, I must confess I thought this at one time too before being in full-time ministry and standing outside and, and, and being a, a brother or sister in the body and, and thinking that, okay, the people who advance the gospel are those guys, the, you know, the professionals, the ones who do it, you know, full-time in the ministry. That's who's supposed to advance the gospel. That's who's supposed to be all worked up about it and excited about it. That, Father, I confess, I was so wrong, so wrong, and you've helped me to see that. You've called each and every one of us as those who have been brought out of darkness and into your marvelous light with those who have been purchased by the blood of your dear son, Jesus Christ, to make known your excellencies to the entire world, to make the gospel our thing. Father, we confess, as even Brother Terry prayed this morning, our hearts are prone to wander, my goodness, constantly wandering and being led astray into things that matter not. Caught up with all the stuff. My goodness, the world's filled with stuff. Father, we just, like children, run off into it. Forgetting about our Lord, our Savior, and the great gospel that we have been called to make known. To proclaim. To share. To live out in word and deed. Father, help this Little church right here, North Fontana, that gathers together every Sunday. And I'm so thankful to be a part of it and so thankful for what you're doing. But help us, Father, to be faithful in all the places that we are. You've put us all over the place, different workplaces, different neighborhoods, different families. You did that. But you have a purpose in doing that. And you saved us that we would make our Savior known. Father, help us even now not to let this go, not to walk out here and go, just another sermon. Father, work through your Spirit in our hearts and not let it go, to, to, to haunt us with it, to continue to pound it into our hard minds, that we continue to think about what is really a big deal. It is the gospel. Father, to confess that it is not always a big deal to us or that we have not cared so much of late and to ask you to, to bring revival to our cold hearts. That we, like Paul, would be crazy about the gospel of Jesus Christ and then make him known in simple ways. Open our mouths, share the good news. Tell others of our faith and our love for our Lord and the great salvation that he gives to any and all who will call upon him in saving faith. I ask this in our Lord's name. Amen.